Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24. This week, we have a special series on the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. That's going to position Ukraine better for reconstruction because the loss of human capital will be smaller because skills and people will be in the country when the time for reconstruction comes. Plus, we meet Aspas's creative director, Lawrence Still. What you want is that everybody has a holistic idea of what the brand is about. So creating a language, terminology that brings to mind the same way to everyone, an ideal, is the first goal. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And as I've mentioned before, all this week we are running a special series on Monaco 24 looking at Ukraine and how the conflict has disrupted lives, society and the country. Before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, places like Kyiv, Bucha and Kherson were not known for missile strikes or trench warfare, but as lively cities and stunning holiday spots. For the first part of the series, Monaco's Lillian Fawcett spoke to three Ukrainians about some of their fondest memories of their country from before the conflict. Aliona Livko begins this report speaking about childhood summers spent harvesting watermelons in Kherson. We had a whole watermelon farm and, and that was quite common enterprise for some Ukrainians back in the day um, when you were trying to make an extra income. My name is Alona Halivko. I am a political consultant currently based at Atticus Partners in London, formerly an MP in Ukraine and a participant of Ukrainian politics for over 13 years. So my grandmother and grandfather initially started that farm. They bought it off of someone else. And ever since then, every summer has become a trip for us to work on the farm, essentially, but also have some days off and travel to the beach because it was further down from the Black Sea and enjoy our summers in the sun. And the watermelons have really become quite symbolic for Ukraine. And I think that symbol has surpassed the borders after the liberation of Kherson, when you could have seen that Ukrainian authorities were referring to watermelons so much and the media was putting that up as a logo everywhere. So the quickest, most efficient way to get your whole family, which would be, you know, my mom, dad, my brother, and then my grandparents, was to all pack into two cars and go on this little road trip. Sometimes, actually, because we're based in southwest of Ukraine near the Carpathian Mountains, there were two routes to take. Um, if we were going via Odessa, for example, we would go through Moldova, and back then we could travel without any border restrictions, essentially. Or you had to go all the way around through all the regions in Ukraine, and that could take up to 24 hours, if not more than that. Sometimes we would stop on the way, camp out just in some forests and woods and really explore Ukraine. And those trips were quite significant because I think, you know, those are the memories that you really carry on for the rest of your life. Some interactions uh, with your family, trying to keep the two kids entertained um, on such a long trip is, of course, a tricky one. But that's when we learned all of our 
games that had anything to do with languages. We would sing our songs. Uh, that's where I learned most of Ukrainian folk songs. Just my grandmother and, and my mom trying to occupy us. My name is Natalia Humenyuk. I'm a Ukrainian journalist. I, I'm based and I live in Kyiv. Kyiv is probably today one of the most vibrant cities in Central Europe. There are around 4 million people who live in Kyiv. It's generally, when you really try to describe it, the first things which are coming to your mind is saying like how green it is because there is a huge river separating the Kiev for two banks and there are incredible amount of the parks and trees and churches. Especially within the last year, especially after the Euromaidan revolution, I think it became very, you know, very hype city. You know, it has probably one of the most known techno discos in the country. There was, you know, uh, quite a extraordinary restaurant business going on. The area near St. Sophia Cathedral and Hylivsky Cathedral, it's like the oldest part of the city uh, where there are a couple of churches, but also it's quite a hipsterish neighborhood. It became like that, but also historic. It's a bit on the hill over the, over the river. I think it's definitely the, the most beautiful place, you know, if you really bring somebody to Kiev and want to show it. I think due to numerous reasons, uh, we Ukrainians I have a bit of the habit of complain all the time and dislike things and find the, the troubles, small problems in everything. But I think what I heard from many people, including from myself, that's how I feel. We all started to, you know, like appreciate it more. I think like everybody think like, you know, like I maybe didn't like it enough. I, I didn't see how pretty it is. I, I didn't didn't understand how precious every building is, uh, every street or so. My name is Olga Tokariuk and I'm a Ukrainian journalist and I'm currently based in Oxford in the UK. I used to live in Kyiv for 20 years and that's the city where my daughter was born. Her name is Lubava and she's seven years old. And one of our favorite spots to go on the weekend was a park in Bucha in a little town close to Kyiv, Kyiv suburb, very easy to reach, very green, very fast developing. So we would go there on the weekends and stroll in the parks and enjoy the scenery and enjoy also the proximity of a, of a river, of water. She would play on the playgrounds and we would just people watch and admire how quickly this tiny little town was developing and so many Kyiv residents actually started to move there in the last years because the quality of life there was much better than in the capital. It was greener, it was smaller, it was very easy to reach. So then, of course, seeing what Russians have done to Bucha during the invasion and all the atrocities that were committed there, and people killed and houses burned, that, of course, you know, was very shocking and striking because that's not how I remembered the town and knowing that now it is different was so shocking. But then I know that it is rebuilding. It is rebuilding very fast. And I really hope that we will be able to return to Bucha with my family and with my daughter and enjoy the beauty of this town again. 
Although, of course, there will be scars. And I think in the park that we used to visit, there will be a memorial to all the civilians who were killed in this town. And here is the second part of our special series on Ukraine. One of the many tasks at hand for leaders in Ukraine is to understand what is needed in order to reconstruct its destroyed cities. Oleksandr Senkevich is the mayor of Mykolaiv, who saw his city under siege by Russian military forces in February and March 2022. Earlier this year, he was at the World Economic Forum in Davos, precisely to make the case for international support. He met with Monaco Stoneweb to discuss the importance of being at the summit for part two of our series. The session uh, is about uh, renovation of Ukraine after the war. So from emergency needs to development of our cities, our local communities, because we think that we need to build Ukraine from the bottom, I mean, from the lowest level of uh, local governments, local city councils. We will share the, our experience on, on how we passed this war, I mean, how we defended our communities, and what we do now and what we plan to do in future after this war will end. And what has your experience been? The experience is really hard, you know, for people who were civilians uh, and planned uh, development of their territories for the future, like sustainable development and green technologies, green uh, heating, green uh, electricity. We started to be defenders of our city. We built fortifications, we uh, buildings, we we built different. We helped our army to defend our city and our uh, and our country. And then we, mo we moved our enemy back. We helped army to be more strong and to regroup and to get more force to move forward and push Russians up be uh, behind her soul. So you are in a stronghold at the moment. Are you now in a position to rebuild? Yes, Mikolaev has... Uh, a really good experience in survival because our city was eight months without drinking water at all because Russians ruined our pipes that helped us to bring fresh water from Dnipro River uh, near Kherson to the city of Mykolaiv. Well, before the war, we pumped 120,000 cubic meters per day to the city of Mykolaiv. Then, after the ruin of the pump station and those pipes, we had eight months of uh, lack of drinking water. So we made boreholes, we took water under the ground, and we shared it to distribute it to people. Today, we, we resolved this problem with water. We are resolving problems with electricity. We are building a new plan of renovation. We started with a general plan, master plan of the city, which will be the base of our renovation plan. And moreover, we don't want to just to rebuild those ruined objects ruined by the war, but we want to make it better. Instead, let's say, of two old schools to build one modern school and do some, you know, roads connected with uh, with those children who need education. So it will be like build back better rule that we plan to use on, on the renovation. So as soon as this war happens, we need to prepare all the documentations, all the plans, all the bureaucracy procedures to start the rebuild and renovate Ukraine after the end of the war. The scars of war are still being discovered in Mykolaiv, Russian torture chambers, 
What has the experience of warfare been like for the city? Every time then when you think that it's hard it is hard for you to live or you have really big problems, start to think about those cities that or about those people who who have bigger problems who are now under shelling, everyday shelling, because Mikolai, before the liberation of her son, was under everyday shelling. And let's say we have we had only 46 days without shellings. All other days we were bombarded by Russians, missiles, cluster bombs and everything. So today we are in a silent mode. We have time to get all those ruins out of the city, to renovate some buildings, houses, private houses, and to launch water, heating, and electricity. So we work on that, on survival, but we still, uh, we already think about development. For the cities that are still under attack, is the West doing enough? Is Germany doing enough? You know, sometimes uh, people ask me why our army goes so slow, goes so slow forward. But I usually say that we need to save as many people as we can because our Western partners help us with the armory, with weapons, with the tanks and everything, but no one will fight instead of us. So we need to save our lives, uh, lives of our soldiers. And for sure, we need help of all the uh, Western world because we, we are fighting now not with with uh, Russia. And it's another war between Russia and Ukraine. This is a war between uh, Russian world and Western civilization. So you, you remember the, the World War II when everyone had silence when Hitler started to occupy different territories. And we see it grew to the World War II. So today, world uh, incorporation uh, stops this World War III, and Ukraine is on front line. Finally, there is a session on energy transformation in Ukraine. You spoke about pipelines being destroyed. In Mykolaiv, what is the situation with energy? To be honest, we, we have we experience problems with electricity, but they are less than in other parts of Ukraine because there is a nuclear station near us that provides us with electricity. But anyway, let's say we have like uh, blackouts on two on four to switch off uh, four hours with electricity. And we kind of, you know, already familiar with this situation. Uh, but another problem that our enterprises don't work because of these problems. And this is the, the, big, the next challenge that we have is to launch all the productions and uh, to get investments to make them bigger. I think Ukrainians, for sure, Mikolaev citizens, we don't want to be those poor guys who will always ask for money. Please help us. Please. We want to be partners who wants to grow their production, who want to, to get not just, you know, grants, money for free, but the investments that we are ready to turn back and to help businesses, uh, uh, let's say Western businesses, to earn money in Ukraine. And here is our third part of the special series. For many in Ukraine, continuing artistic endeavors becomes impossible as normal life is put on hold. This part three, Monaco's Sophie Monahan Coombs explores the role played by cultural pursuit in wartime, both within and outside of Ukraine, with poet and essayist Andrei Lubka, who has shunned writing to focus on volunteering for the war effort, and Peter Doroshenko, director of the Ukrainian Museum, in New York. 
for over more than 200 years, Russia has been a shadow over Ukraine. And with that shadow, it also covered in a very big way the whole aspect of Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian art, literature, music, etc. One could even say that 40 or 50 percent of Russian culture is built on the bones of Ukraine. It's fascinating on how the 200 years of Tsarist, Soviet, and now Putinist kind of um, periods have really russified what has always been Ukrainian. And it's, for the rest of the world, it's just too easy to, to accept that and to not think about what is Ukrainian, what's the difference between Ukraine and Russia. Let me just lump it into Russia. Well, that's changing. In times of conflict, life as you know it is put on hold. But what is the role of arts and culture during this time? Andrew Lubka is a Ukrainian writer, essayist and translator. His published works include three books of poetry, short stories, essays and three novels, many of which have been translated. But he's not currently writing. I can say that my work actually not only changed, but since the big war started uh, one year ago, I didn't write some fiction or essays, uh, I don't know, literature uh, in broader sense. Uh, now I am focused on helping Ukrainian army. I use my writer's renome, I use my writer's connection. So in, in some way, it is the continuation of my cultural work, but I work with my audience, with my readers who have read my books before, who visited my talks and discussions and so on. And now they are my donors because they support my activity. Andrew uses his public profile to raise funds and to channel them into the war effort. He's visited the front line 18 times over the past year. As well as delivering jeeps to the army, he takes chocolate and coffee, the kind that he describes as previously found in Ukraine's hipster cafes. But will he return to writing? You know, it is a very hard question for us because, first of all, when I am thinking about the future, first of all, I am thinking about the way and possibility that I have to survive, first of all, as a physical, biological being, because it is the biggest threat. And if I will be alive after the war, if I will survive, I'm sure that my writing, my, uh, my books will be very different from what I have done before, because this time changed us crucially. Probably I will write something about this experience, about people I have met during this year, about living under the war uh, circumstances. But also it is highly possible that I will write something which is completely not about the war, because this experience is very hard and psychologically it is very black. And probably after the war, for me, it, it would be better to, to write something about in some new, completely new genre, maybe some kind of fantasy about or some kind of utopia and to write about something good and bright. So I'm not sure what I will be writing. I want to continue my writings after the war. Uh, I miss this feeling when I'm typing on my computer. But first of all, and my main goal now, is to survive in a very biological, physical sense. While those within Ukraine are having their artistic endeavours sidelined as they focus on the war effort, organisations outside of the country play an important role picking up the mantle. One such institution is the Ukrainian Museum in New York, the largest arts organisation outside of Ukraine dedicated to the country's arts and culture. 
Founded in 1976, it began as an artist's collective, which started to accumulate art from the diaspora and to create an archive on Ukrainian immigration to the US. Now, the purpose-built museum houses temporary and permanent collections, and it's headed by Peter Doroshenko. He became director in September, months into the conflict. There has been obviously a lot of focus on all arts organizations outside of Ukraine, uh, and not just Ukrainian-based, on the war. And so it's a balancing act because an organization such as the Ukrainian Museum doesn't want to become a war museum, but yet at the same time, we do have to address it. So it's, I think, for anybody working at a museum, kind of a, a tightrope, but it's important for us to, for our visitors to know what is actually happening with art and culture in Ukraine during this war period, but yet also not to forget the success stories and and the the robust kind of uh, history of Ukraine and how it pertains to art and culture. The museum showcases Ukrainian culture in New York, but it also helps organizations safeguard arts and culture in Ukraine. One of their key missions is to be at the forefront of decolonizing Ukrainian culture. You can already see this taking place as institutions like the Metropolitan Museum in New York relabel work as Ukrainian rather than Russian. First of all, Ukrainian art and culture is, you know, centuries old. Most recently, in the last 200, 300 years, the traditional arts and crafts have kind of come to the forefront. And for the last 100 years, they've always been there. This has always been downplayed by the Russians on, you know, little villages and little, you know, settlements making their cute little artwork. But that cute little artwork is actually uh, something that has influenced all the great Ukrainian and Eastern European artists, such as Kazimir Malevich, Vladimir Tatlin, the list goes on and on. back here with the fourth part of the special series. The rebuilding of Ukraine is estimated to require upward of 350 billion euros. So what kind of support does Ukraine exactly need and what potential does its economy hold? For part four of our series, Monaco's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov sat down with the chief economist Beata Javorsik from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development to discuss these questions and much more. Petri began by asking Professor Javorsik about the key challenges that Ukraine faces as it sets out to rebuild its war-ravaged infrastructure and economy. There are three preconditions or three necessary ingredients for a successful reconstruction of Ukraine. The first one is stable peace, stable resolution to the conflict. The second one is institutional improvement in Ukraine. And the third one is money. The third one is the easiest to resolve because the international community stands ready to support Ukraine. I'm also optimistic about this, the second ingredient, institutions, because the prospect of EU accession provides an opportunity for Ukraine to get on this reform path and improve the quality of its governance. So the most challenging ingredient is 
finding a stable solution to the conflict. If we look at the work that the banquet that you represent does, give us a picture of how you support Ukrainian businesses and the authorities and help the business community in the country to thrive. At the moment, we are focusing on supporting Ukraine here and now, on helping the country make it through the winter. We help to keep lights on, to keep heating on, to keep trains running. We support international trade transactions, so imports of vital parts and components, pharmaceuticals. We also provide emergency liquidity to firms. And our loan, Energo, the state energy company, finances emergency repairs that are absolutely necessary for the functioning of the country. And in this way, we are directly contributing to the reconstruction effort. Because if we help to make conditions as bearable as possible for the Ukrainian population, we are going to avoid another wave of refugees. And that's going to position Ukraine better for reconstruction because the loss of human capital will be smaller because skills and people will be in the country when the time for reconstruction comes. What are the key post-war priorities for Ukraine in order to attract foreign investment and to help generate economic growth? Ukraine has a lot of going for it. It's a large country on the European doorstep. It has educated workforce. It is going to be inevitably a very attractive market for foreign direct investment. What it's lacking is institutions. The prospect of EU accession offers an opportunity for the country to embark on an ambitious reform path. Typically, it's very difficult for elected politicians to focus on long-term goal simply because their terms are short. What the EU accession offers is the need to answer only one question. Do you want to become part of the EU? And once the society makes that decision, the path is set because what needs to be done is prescribed by the EU. So it cuts out all these discussions. It cuts out the possibility of populist interests derailing the reform process. And we have seen how well the accession worked in the context of the Eastern European member states. And because now millions of Ukrainians have seen firsthand how much better countries like Poland function, how they have achieved prosperity over the last 30 years, they've seen the proof that the process works. Do you have some kind of an estimate as to how much funds Ukraine will need to rebuild? The World Bank did a detailed calculation last summer, and according to their estimate, Ukraine needed $350 billion last summer. Now, since then, we've seen more destruction. It's a huge figure, and I think it is very clear that international community, multilateral development banks, bilateral aid is not going to be enough. We are 
going to need private sector participation. And here, the EBRD can play an important role in mobilizing private investment in Ukraine. We have been active in Ukraine for three decades. We have been the largest institutional investor there. We've had offices in several places with more than 100 team members on the ground. So we stand ready to do it. And the way we can do it is by investing jointly with private investors from Western countries. Our participation gives them comfort. We do very strict due diligence. We serve as a seal of approval, as a signal that a country is open for business. When you look at Ukraine um, and the country's economy, what have you identified as the key growth sectors with most potential in the country? Ukraine has potential in several areas. It is a country with a lot of fertile land. It is a breadbasket of Europe. So certainly uh, agriculture and agro-processing are an obvious area for Ukraine to grow. The second area is manufacturing. We are witnessing now the process of reshaping of global value chains as firms are interested in diversifying their supply base. And this process has only started now. And it's going to take a while for firms to find additional suppliers. European firms will be looking for suppliers in the European neighborhood. So Ukraine can have the potential to become a manufacturing workshop of Europe. And then there are services. Ukraine has a very sophisticated IT sector, and there are prospects for further exports of services. After all, we've seen big changes in how people work. We've moved to a hybrid work, to remote work. And that means that firms are no longer constrained by having workers in their offices, in their city, or even in their own country. So the differentials in wages between emerging Europe and Western Europe offer big opportunities for trade, for gains, and Potentially, Ukrainian workers could be working remotely from Ukraine while only occasionally visiting their employers in foreign countries. And for the final installment of the series, we've tasked Monocle's Andrew Muller to bring us a special edition of What We Learned, looking at what we've learned over the past 12 months of Russia's war in Ukraine. We learned this week that the producers had been having ideas again. No, don't. No, no, no. In fairness, it doesn't happen that often, and really, what can you do? Always grateful for the support of the General Muttered Agreement crew at such trying times. We learned that the producers had noticed that February 24th, when this monologue was first due to air, precisely coincided with the first anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And they reckoned that a reflection on what we have learned from 12 months of Russia's 72-hour special military operation might therefore be in order. So thinking back 12 months, we learned that the word of Russia is not necessarily its bond. 
we were as shocked as you were, because we had learned as late as February 20th, 2022, that Russia had absolutely no designs on Ukraine whatsoever, that the merest thought of invasion had not even contemplated the vaguest prospect of crossing Russia's mind, and we learned this from no less an authority than Russia's ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Antonov. I will start from basic things. There is no innovation and there is no such plans. We learned four days later that the ambassador may have neglected to check his spam folder. After months of preparations, the Russian president Vladimir Putin has launched a major military operation against Ukraine. Speaking on national television, Mr Putin urged Ukrainian troops to lay down their arms and go home. Well, that was the idea. We have been learning since then of the extreme reluctance of Ukraine's troops and Ukraine's people generally to fulfil their assigned role in Vladimir Putin's plan, and we have learned more broadly of the eternal wisdom of the maxim usually credited to the Prussian Field Marshal Helmuth von Moltke, along the lines that no plan survives contact with the enemy, later paraphrased by the American boxer Mike Tyson, who noted that everybody has a plan until they get smacked in the mouth. And we learned, indeed, that among those Ukrainians declining to play their part in Putin's plan was Kiev's own heavyweight champion, now the city's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko. The Russians have plans to occupy Kiev already three weeks ago. But our army destroyed whole plans of Russians. And Russians, I am, as mayor, told to you to talk to everyone. Never ever Russians to come to our city. Better we die if give the city to Russia. But we would, from the very first weeks of Russia's onslaught, learn a perhaps more startling tutorial in leadership from an arguably less likely source, specifically the narrator of the Ukrainian releases of the Paddington Bear films. No, мне мило. Я очень надеюсь, что у меня тоже есть такие черты. Ну. And indeed, Ukraine's 2006 Dancing with the Stars champion. We learned that among Vladimir Putin's many misjudgments was one about the metal of his opposite number, a comedian who had campaigned for Ukraine's presidency substantially by starring in a sitcom in which he made fun of Ukraine's presidency. Hello? Yes, you can connect. Hello, my congratulations. We decided to take your country to the European Union. Oh, fuck! Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, wow! We learned that there are, despite what we had learned from the experiments in this field of one or two other countries, advantages to having a professional showman in charge, as President Volodymyr Zelensky embarked on a virtual world tour by video link, expertly tailoring his routine to the local crowd. To the Parliament of the United Kingdom, he went heavy on the Churchill. We will fight in the forest, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. We will fight on the banks of the rivers and we are looking for your help for the help of the civilized countries. To the Congress of the United States, he reminded of a previous date that would live in infamy. We need you right now. Remember Pearl Harbor. Terrible morning of December 7, 1941, when your sky was black from the planes attacking you. 
And we learned that he'd done his homework on Spain, where he compared Mariupol to Guernica, on France, where he compared Mariupol to Verdun, on Germany, where he spoke of a new wall Moscow was attempting to build across Europe, and invoked a previous entertainer-turned-president who'd had something to say on such subjects. The former uh, actor, US president... Um, Ronald Reagan, when he was here in Berlin, he said in his uh, Berlin speech, Mr. President, tear down this uh, wall. So let me tell the same thing now. Councilor Schultz, please uh, tear down this uh, wall. Interpreter having a long week, clearly, but you get the gist. But we learned or were reminded that a leader without followers is just a fellow taking a walk. President Zelensky is not the only Ukrainian whose resolve in the face of a dreadful threat we have learned to admire. There are, give or take, 44 million more of them, from whom the rest of us can only hope to have learned something about courage, and if we can't learn that, we can perhaps at least absorb the lesson that little good ever comes of indulging or appeasing tyrants in the hope that they'll calm down eventually. And over the 12 months to date of Russia's absurd, petulant, monstrous rampage, we have learned of no better way of summing it up than the words of Ukrainian border guard Roman Hribov, serving with the small garrison on Snake Island in the Black Sea early in the conflict, who were instructed to surrender by the crew of a Russian warship. You don't need a translation. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. And there's more Ukraine now on the show. As you know, I do a global countdown every week looking at the top songs in different countries. This time I decided to take a look at the Ukrainian pop charts. Now, very topical choice today. A very topical choice because I'm heading to Ukraine. And i got to be really honest with you, actually. I always enjoy the Ukrainian music scene. I think it's always fun, at times experimental. But looking at the top five, which we will be looking in a second, you can see that the war had an effect on the music industry, even in the themes that they mention in the song. So there's a lot of things about longing or even songs that are quite military, uh, you know, vibes about, you know, we have to protect our country. So it's quite an interesting to see how it affected. Not everything. There is a little exception here, which we will find out. Uh, but shall we start at number five? Yeah, absolutely. What is it? It's a beautiful ballad. He's only 17, actually. Actually, but he's doing very well. Uh, it's a ballad. It's called Waiting at Home, of course, related to the war as well. This is Yaktak and Dovi with Waiting at Home. <laughs>
17, wow. Just 17 and the songs, there's no blanket warmer than your hand, you know. Uh, I will catch the last train when she's waiting for me at home. So it does have this connection with the war because, you know, that's what many Ukrainians are leaving now. So a lot of families are separated and, and the shows in the track. But yeah, very mature 17 year old. Uh, I mean, but he's been studying music since he was a kid. So mm. yeah, uh, definitely a big talent mm. there, there from, from Ukraine. I was just talking to a Ukrainian author last night, Oksana Zabushko, and she was saying that you can see that in Ukrainian literature too. Mm. There will be this kind of great big fault line in pre and post uh, the war uh, in literature kind of covering that period. You'll absolutely see it like like barks on a tree, ring barks on a tree or striations in rock, won't that, you? That's very interesting. Actually, we should do a show perhaps in a few years' time. Hopefully, the war will be over and I think there'll be something interesting uh, to look at as well. But number four is a different change of tone. I mean, he's one of the biggest hip-hop artists uh, in Ukraine. So, of course, the song... You know, it's actually it's actually very sad. Dedicated to his friend Valentin, who died uh, during the war. Um, but it's a little bit more punchier. I mean, he says, "We will liberate village after village," and he keeps mentioning some of the villages that have been destroyed. A very powerful song, very patriotic as well. It's by uh, Skovka with "Hear the Anthem." <laughs> Як не пристрелить за нами правда, значить визволим селом ми за селом за нами правда, значить ми здолем повиганяем зло. Yeah, cloudy smokes uh, in the clear sky. A very beautiful track as well. And I have to say, I mean, there will be quite a lot of events because tomorrow it's one year since the war started. There will be a video here in London today at Trafalgar Square. It's an event organized by the U.S. Embassy uh, and the, the Embassy of Ukraine, of course. But there will be other events around the world. So mm. Skovka will be performing in Gdansk tomorrow. Uh, probably who performed the song, I'm sure. And uh, there's one tomorrow in London where people are uh, meeting at Holland Park and they'll have candles and they'll march from there to the Russian embassy. And I believe at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, there's also a candlelight vigil. That's amazing. I think this is so important. And and they're using big names as well. Jamala, who won Eurovision, she will be in Trafalgar Square today as well. So yeah, a lot, lot of interesting events. And I think people should go to them. Uh, and number three, Georgina, that's interesting. I told you how the music industry have changed. Uh, Dora Fever, she's a pop singer. You know, she's great, uh, all glitzy. And, you know, I really like some of her tracks. But even in her new track, there is something about what we've been discussing. It's called WhatsApp. Uh, and the reason why it's called WhatsApp, because that's how sometimes Ukrainians are connecting with their families, you know. So, we, as I said, it's a song about separation, uh, distance, d- despair as well. But most of all, love. Uh, let's have a listen to Dora Fever with WhatsApp. <laughs> Was Dora Fever there with WhatsApp, and he has an interesting name for for a track as well. Hello, do you hear me? It's, it's still quite poppy, and that's her style, but completely adapted 
for what Ukraine is going through at the moment as mm. well. And will many of these make make it onto our playlist? I think so. I think so. I think there are fever, perhaps. I mean, you know, we play, we like this kind of pop bots there as well. So, and by the way, if we have any Ukrainian listeners, we do like electropop. I know Ukraine does that incredibly well. Any suggestions? I'm welcome. You know, to to hear the tips. Uh, we love Ukrainian music here, but you know. They are in a war, but they still enjoy pop music, right? And it's not just Ukrainian artists. And number two, we have actually a song that I like it very much. It is in our playlist, actually. Uh, and I love her raspy voice. It's Miley Cyrus with Flowers. Shall we have a listen? Absolutely. I didn't want to leave you. I didn't want to lie. Started to cry, but then remembered I. I can buy myself She's great. And is this a song about loving yourself? Are you old enough to remember her dad? Yes. I mean, I, I know who her dad is, but I, I was probably not dancing to his Billy songs. Billy Ray Cyrus, Billy Achy Ray? Breaky Heart. Achy Breaky Heart. A good song, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, who's number one? I mean, number one, uh, it's, I mean, he's the biggest artist, one of the biggest bands in Ukraine at the moment. And I have to say, this song is so powerful. It's a mixture of metal, electronica, and it's really kind of, it's about, you know, defending your country against the evil forces. I mean, it's quite a... Very powerful song. Uh, it's by Anti Tiller, and the song's called Bakhmut Fortress. We'll we'll find out a bit more, but let's first play a clip of the song. Motherland, I'm fighting. Wow. And if I may say, he will be performing in Trafalgar Square, he and his band, uh, today, actually, at a special video. And we have a special guest in studio, Georgina. We certainly do. It's our entertainment correspondent. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Laura Kramer. Thank you for coming in. Why are you here, though? <laughs> well, I'm here because I actually interviewed the front man of the band, said band that we were just listening to, Trastopolia, uh, because he is in London, and I got a chance to speak to him about the concert that he's going to do uh, that the band is going to play in order to raise funds for kids whose fathers and whose parents have been killed in battle in Ukraine. And we got to chat, too, about what he'll be doing in London, and including uh, in Trafalgar Square. And also, he'll be heading to the U.S. Embassy House. He's been invited there as well. And he was just telling us about, you know, they went basically from being, he went from being a front man to being on the front line, the whole band. They were paramedics on the front line for a while. And then they were told by the commanders that they could better serve their country by spreading the message about the war and Ukraine and creating music and putting uh, music out into the world. And so they've been traveling mostly through Europe, but throughout the world, spreading the message, appearing on TV shows. You know, they they appeared on a Finnish TV show that he spoke about and how, how important that was for him because uh, he said they recognized that Finland had also once had troubles with Russia and they had, uh, they had overcome that. And so... It was really important to him. So it was really incredible to speak to him. He said that they invited a few famous guests. So you may know that the band has collaborated with, for example, the likes of Ed Sheeran in the past. Ed can't come to the concert because he's in Australia, but they have invited Bono and also James Blunt. 
And now a highlight from Monaco on Design. We meet Lawrence Steele. He's the Aspaz's creative director. And we spoke with him at the brand's Milan showroom to find out how the label has evolved since his appointment. There are several different levels of um, working as a creative director as opposed to as a designer on a collection. Uh, the main thing is finding new ways to communicate in a sort of viral way to the team, you know. And the team is built of creatives, but it's also built of commercial people. What you want is that everybody has a holistic idea of what the brand is about. So creating a language, terminology that brings to mind the same way to everyone, an ideal is the first goal. And so in that sense, you know, in the language that I've been using, um, I've been speaking about aspacy as a wardrobe, um, a wardrobe as opposed to a collection, because you can imagine that someone has chosen the pieces and that each piece has been chosen because it's been necessary and that those pieces maybe work together in order to make an identity. It's the first way of going about it so that we're kind of removed from the idea of like making a look for each season and more honed in on adding something to the collection of pieces that wasn't there before, um, needs to be there or needs to be updated. The language is the first thing. For me, it was essential to recuperate the codes. I've been in love with the brand for such a long time. I feel that it, it was in the vanguard um, already 30 years ago when um, the idea was to focus on product and kind of evergreens. There are lots of companies that do that. I mean, you think of, uh, I don't know, Levi's or Carhartt or Barber, brands that kind of do these very specific things. The idea of doing it on a vaster sort of uh, conception of pieces was very forward thinking. And I think that fashion has kind of caught up with that idea. Now there's this whole thing of how society has changed, how we're contemplating gender, how we're contemplating consumerism to a degree. And the fact that you can buy an object that you invest in and that you want to keep for more time puts focus on function and on a, a sense of reality and quality that I think is an, another interesting challenge. So putting that forward as part of the language that we're speaking in the offices and a way that we're understanding the garments that are standing in front of us has been the main focus. There's also a photographic sort of representation of the idea and kind of choosing a way to reiterate that same concept. I've chosen the metaphor of the family, which is, in my mind, an Italian thing, right? A very essential part of Italian life, where you have um, a common culture. There's a spirit that has been ingrained in people from generation to generation, from parents to children. The fact is that that culture is interpreted in different ways by the different members of the family. So you have the brother that might uh, you know, want to express himself against the grain of those ideas or, or towards those, and a sister or you know, an older brother or mother or father, and eventually how objects in this household can be worn or passed from one to the other and take on different meanings. In that sense, when we're looking at an object that's an evergreen in the collection, we're also looking to bring it to someone new. 
and figuring out is it in the fabrication, is it in the color, is it in the way we put it together with something else, is it taking away a sizing system that defines it as masculine or feminine and start using a new sizing system, one, two, three, four, five, that opens the choice and the interpretation of what the object is which simultaneously maybe helps production reduce the volume of pieces being manufactured and concentrate the volume being produced to get a better cost uh, quality ratio. The work that I'm doing is sort of like honing in on a concept that is common for all of us to look at and then from which each side of the business can kind of uh, relate to to then send out outwards as a message. And for Tall Stories this week, the spin-off show of The Urbanist, Paul Logothetis explores the story of Cold War Canada through an extensive network of tunnels and offices built beneath a farming community in western Ottawa in the 60s. In the 1960s, anxiety over nuclear Armageddon led governments around the world to seek safety below the surface of the earth. In Ottawa, Canadian Prime Minister John Diefenbaker commissioned the construction of a 100,000-square-foot, 215-foot-deep bunker in the nearby community of Carp. The quaint farming town, 30 kilometers from the nation's capital, was designated to host the Central Emergency Government Headquarters in the event of a nuclear attack. The Diefenbunker, as it would be coined, would be the seat of government hosting up to 600 government and military officials for up to 30 days in the event of nuclear war. Today, the Diefenbunker is Canada's Cold War Museum, a national historic site and a relic to Canada's role in reaction to the Cold War. The Diefenbunker was the largest of the 36 bunkers built nationwide, and its construction lasted just 18 months from 1959, with 1,000 workers passing through the site. The Diefenbunker's underground city is laid out over four floors and held together by 32,000 cubic yards of hand-poured concrete and 5,000 tons of steel. Journalist George Bramble coined the name Diefenbunker during his investigation into the mysterious construction site that the government had officially billed as a communication center. With a bird's-eye view, Bramble spotted an unlikely clue that ultimately exposed this Potemkin village for what it was, according to curator Sean Campbell. He was working through the Toronto Telegram, and he hired a plane and flew over the site, and he took pictures of what was going on. And the thing he identified was the amount of toilets that were outside that were going to be installed. So <laughs> washrooms could be a dead giveaway. The architectural feats of the Diefenbunker begin at the entrance and its 379-foot-long blast tunnel. It was designed to absorb the Mach 2 energy shockwave of a 5-megaton nuclear blast from 2 kilometers away. The high level of protection also means the structure is airtight and would float if dropped into the ocean. It was a feat of engineering. You know, it was the first use of the critical path method for a construction project that was developed in the 1950s. So the critical path method being an algorithm for scheduling a set of project activities. If funny enough, its origins was with DuPont and the Manhattan Project. So the building of the bunker itself had roots in the building of atomic bombs. Stepping into the bowels of the building is like walking into a mid-century office housed in a submarine. Long, beige-colored hallways are highlighted by sharp fluorescent tube lighting and its incessant humming. The top-secret facility was shuttered in 1994, and little has been altered since. 
leaving the reality of life underground intact. The war cabinet room is decked out with coffee pots and ashtrays for those long sessions, with maps decorating the walls and original TV sets hanging from the ceilings. Nothing sits unfastened here. The rotary telephones are all glued to desks to avoid turning into flying projectiles during a shockwave. Same goes for manual typewriters and filing cabinets inside ministry offices like Central Mortgage and Housing Corporation or Industry Trade and Commerce. Metal and plastic were favored for most furnishings, with the Prime Minister's office holding one of the few wooden desks. The PM was also one of the few with privacy, his drab quarters made up of a single bed and ensuite bathroom. Tiefenbaker himself never stepped foot inside the structure upon learning his wife Olive would never be able to join him. All personnel admitted had to leave their family behind. One former employee, he said, you know, I had to think about my baby boy and, and my wife and they would be ashes. And it was very powerful when I was going through the oral histories to develop the audio guide, hearing that sound. And I thought it would be impactful for people to remember that. Strolling through the maze of offices, decontamination rooms, and canteens, it's easy to imagine an extended sojourn here morphing into its own version of The Shining. Especially as you peer through a plate glass window into a squat isolation bunk, where those displaying worrying mental health signs were placed. Many areas came to be used in unorthodox ways. The kitchen freezer was the backup mortuary in the event of overflow, and a Bank of Canada vault designed to house gold ultimately only ever guarded one prized item, beer. Today, the Diefenbunker's nostalgic trip provides a unique setting for modern-day activities, hosting Canada's two largest escape rooms, a Halloween zombie walk, and as a film set for Hollywood, including Ben Affleck's The Sum of All Fears. Kids can come to spy camp and even have their birthday parties hosted here. A small morsel of fun in a site built on fear. That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening. <laughs>